Hello. Everyone's very quiet today. That kind of mid-August feeling. Or was everyone up really early this morning watching the 10,000 metre final? <laughs> Rich was praying. Well, praying that we'd win. Um, <laughs> okay, I've got some envelopes here just to warn those of you who are under the age of 18 by quite a way. Um, if you want to get involved, there will be an opportunity for you to open some envelopes, which is, compared to the toys you've got at the back, is probably the most exciting thing you could possibly imagine. Um, those of you who don't know me, my name's Dan, and uh, we're going to be we're having slightly shorter sermons over the, um, well, the current three weeks that we're actually meeting in August, um, just to be hour-long services, so we're going to be going for about 20-25 minutes, um, and we're in a series on the book of Daniel at the moment, and we're looking all the way through this book from the Old Testament, and I've been given the last kind of six chapters to try and deal with in three weeks with the kids in, in shorter sermons, and for those of you who know anything about the last few chapters, you'll know there's lots of interesting visions in there, which we had a look at one of them last week in Daniel 7. This week we're taking a bit of a break from the visions, and we're going to be looking at Daniel 9, and we're going to be looking at a few very simple but I think profound lessons on how we can pray. Um, that's, that's the aim today, is to read a chunk of Daniel 9 and to just think, what there are four questions I think that come from this passage in Daniel 9 that can teach us about how we can pray um, and how we should think about prayer, actually. So um, before we read that, need a little bit of context, and then I will read it out and get some kids up. So you guys, re- you guys ready over there, kids? Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. They are. Li- they're aware of the fact that they will be involved at some point, which is a good start. Um, so bit of context. What happens in the Old Testament is God's people are given a law, and which they need to obey. It's kind of like their part of the deal. God's part of the deal is he chooses them to be his people, that he might bless them and that they might be a blessing to the nations. Their part of the deal is they have his laws and requirements to keep. And in part of that law, in the book of Deuteronomy, there is a promise where God says, if you obey my laws, everything will go well for you. You'll be blessed in the field. You'll be blessed at home. You'll be just Everything will be amazing. But if you disobey my commandments then curses will come upon you. It, might, it may well be that you don't get the crops that you want one year. You'll get invaded by foreign armies, and kind of it escalates and escalates, and the worst curse they can possibly get is being taken out of the land that God's given them and sent to a foreign land. Fast forward about a thousand years, that is exactly what happens to God's people. They have turned against him so much that God says, right, I am sending you out of your land. You're going to get taken over by a big, nation called Babylon, and you're going to be taken and put into exile, and that is the ultimate curse that can come upon God's people as a result of their disobedience. But one of the amazing things in that part, at the end of of Deuteronomy, is God says, but when you're in exile, and you turn back to me, and and you turn back and you repent of your sins, I will return you back to your land, And I will give you a new heart, and I'll give you an ability to obey my laws. So in other words, you guys will end up in exile, but as you repent, I'm going to bring you back. And actually, from that point onwards, you will have the ability to obey my laws, and everything will go well. Unfortunately, they so they ended up in exile in Babylon. And what happens is, Jeremiah, who's a prophet during that time, had been listening to God and probably knew the end of Deuteronomy as prophets tended to do. They knew their Old Testament quite well. And he gets a revelation from God that they're going to be in exile for 70 years. 
So he writes to the people in exile and says, guys, settle down. You're going to be here for 70 years. So take wives, build houses, have families and so on. But after 70 years, I'm going to return you to the land. And that is the promise that Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, ends up finding. And we're going to read through it and just think through a few, a few things we can learn about how to pray. So Daniel 9, we're going to read verses 1 to 19. So in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, so this is around about 50, 60 years after um, they've been taken into exile. From the first point they get taken into exile, we're getting to about 70 years now. So um, he was by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all their lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness. For we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God, by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath Turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword against all who are around us. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh, my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. 
that's quite a prayer to be praying. You just kind of look at it and you think, I, I wonder what it would have been like to see Daniel praying that. As he's praying that in Babylon, he's noticed in Jeremiah, he's been reading Jeremiah, maybe in his daily Bible readings, and you think, wait, wait a minute, he does the math. And you think, 70 years. 70 years are up, but we're still in exile. And so what he does is he turns to God in prayer and confesses the people's sin and asks, please, please deliver us from exile for the sake of your name. And we're going to look at a few things that we can learn from Daniel's prayer. And this is the point where I need some kids to come up. So I'm, any, any children who want to come up and be involved, it will, it will involve needing strong arms to be able to hold up a piece of paper for at least five or ten minutes. Yes, we have Aween. And Ishin, and we've got more people coming. Yes, great. Okay, you guys, if you could just kind of line up. Um, I only have four pieces of paper, but you can team together. Maybe we can do families or something. Um, so, what we're going to do is, I think there are four questions that emerge out of this passage that teach us something about prayer. And so, let's see. We've got, um, you can have one. There you go. You guys, do you guys want to share? You can be the, you can represent the Sali family. You guys can have one, and then we can have you and you young ones at the end. Okay, so don't open it yet. Don't open it yet. So we're going to open them in order just to make sure that it all kind of goes according to plan, which never happens in kids' work, by the way, for those of you involved. You always have to improvise a little bit. So can we open letter number one and find out the first possible question? And when you've got it out, if you could hold it up high and we can all read it out together, I think it might be easier to open the other side. Yeah, there's a bit of an opening already. Okay, right. What, what's that say? Okay, what has God said? Do you want to hold that nice and high? Yeah, you hold that for a little bit. So what has God said? Now, the way this prayer starts is Daniel notices that God has promised something. He's promised you're going to be in exile for 70 years, then I'm going to return you. And Daniel looks at that promise and says, this needs prayer now. And so we, I think one of the lessons we can learn is we need to ask ourselves when we're praying, what has God said? Are we aware of the promises that God has made to his whole people in Scripture? Are we aware of the promises that God has made that he will build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail? Are we aware of those promises? Are we aware of the promises God has made to us as a church? There are some very, very significant promises that God has made as a church. If you want to find out about some of them and get your faith stirred for prayer, Come and talk to one of the elders or someone who's been around at Rev for years and they'll be able to tell you promise after promise. Just as a preview, we had a promise from God that gang leaders will become like putty in our hands. That's a promise that we want to be praying into. So we want to remind ourselves, what has God said? Daniel reminds himself, wait a minute, God said something, so I'm going to pray. When God gives you a promise as well, do you pray into it or do you just wait for it to happen? Okay, so this might be handy, actually, to get the kids' feedback on this. If your parents are, tell you that they're going to give you a gift, do you just kind of wait quietly for months? You do? No, no. If I can remember when I was a kid, I did not wait quietly. If my parents said, oh, we're going to get you a birthday present, or we might get this for your birthday, even though I knew it would happen, I would keep going on and on and on about it. It probably drove my parents insane as a result. Actually, prayer needs to be like that. We need to be the kind of people who look at a promise that God gives us and who don't just sit on it and say, okay, that's going to happen. Because actually that's not the way generally God's promises work in the Bible. God wants to give promises so that his people can get hold of him and a little bit like a child who's been promised a present will go on and on and say, when are you going to do this? When are you going to do this? And that's what we do at our prayer meetings on Tuesdays, which are on hold for the month of August. 
but from September, should we give it a real push and come back and pray and be kind of a bit reckless in prayer on that front? So, excellent. Well done. You can keep standing there if you want holding it, or you can go back to your seat. Whatever you... You might need the toilet. Okay. All right. In that case, you can, you can hold that for us. Thank you very much. Number two. Can we open envelope number two? <laughs> okay. What do we got? What does that say? What is God like? Okay, so Daniel roots his prayer at the beginning. He turns to a promise and he thinks, oh, I need to pray into this. Notice how he starts his prayer. He says, O oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. The first thing Daniel does isn't to say, God, we've sinned, or to say, God, please will you set us free from exile. The first thing he does is he reminds himself of what God's like. And I think it's really important that we make sure that we base our prayers on what God is like rather than what we're like. Because if we base it on what we're like, when we're having a good day, we'll pray well. When we're having a bad day, we will not pray. And so Daniel directs his attention, which is actually why if, when we have prayer meetings on Tuesday, we always start with a time of praise so that we direct our attention to God. A little bit like Daniel, we're saying the great and awesome God who keeps steadfast covenant, who keeps love and steadfast covenant. When you're praying for God to fulfill his promises and you remind yourself of the fact that he is steadfast and keeps his covenant, that helps you in prayer. So, for example, okay, another question for you guys. If you want something, so if you want a gift for your birthday, for example, who are you, who are you more likely to go and ask? Your mum and dad or some random stranger you just met on the street? Mum and dad, okay? I think part of the reason is you know your mum and dad. You know that they're the kind of people who will want to give you a birthday present. Whereas if you just walk up to Joe Bloggs on the street, they will not know who you are, and there's probably not that much of a chance they'll give you a birthday present. When you know someone, you have a much higher incentive to ask. If you know that, that your parents are the kind of people who will want to give you a birthday present, you're much more likely to ask them. If we... Hello. <laughs> loving the glasses... If we remind ourselves of what God is like before we pray, we are much more likely to then go to him and, and ask for promises. Make sense? Loving the laughter that's going on here. This is fun, having the kids in. I like it. Okay. So, we've got to remember the basis, the foundation of our prayer is not who we are. It's who God is. Yeah? If we base our prayer on how good we are, it's not going to go well. Notice what um, Daniel says towards the end. He says, for the sake of, he says, we do not make our plea on the, because of our righteousness. If you make the plea because of your righteousness, it's like building a house on sand. Because as good as our efforts can be, they are never going to cut it. God's righteousness, however, is a very, very good foundation to build prayer on. Which is very encouraging because, I don't know about you, but I sin. And if I sin and I try to come to God in prayer and I base my prayer on my righteousness, I'm, I'm done for. Whereas if I base it on God's righteousness, it's much, much easier to pray and it's much more effective because actually we're showing we're trusting God rather than ourselves. Great, that's listen to. You guys hold those nice and high for the moment. It's going to be a bit of a challenge for you guys. You're going to try and hold it up without your arms tiring at all. Okay, can we have lesson number three? <laughs> Open it like a birthday present. What does that say? Have we sinned? Okay, so having said that we don't base our prayers on our righteousness but on God's righteousness, we do need to acknowledge if we have sinned. Because although so our righteousness is not the foundation on which we pray, but 
if we have unconfessed sin in our life, it can actually hinder our prayers. So there is evidence of that in the New Testament. In 1 Peter 3, Peter is telling husbands to love their wives and to uh, basically to treat them well so that their prayers might not be hindered. And so although God is absolutely clear, your prayers are not answered on the basis of whether you're good or bad, they are, our prayers can be hindered or can be stopped. by. So it's a little bit like putting a spanner in the work. Okay, so the foundation of a, so a bike, for example, is going along. The axle and the wheels are the things that are holding the bike together. That's the foundation, if you want. That's kind of like God's character, God's righteousness. You can throw a spanner in front of that, into the wheels of that bike, and it ends up buckling. Our sin can be a little bit like that. If we're going into prayer, and we know there's unconfessed, unrepented sin in our lives, but we're still just going to God and saying, God, please give us this, you promised. And we know that there's stuff that we're into that we haven't repented of, haven't confessed. Actually, that's something that we need to deal with. And that's something that Daniel spends most of this prayer dealing with. Most, I imagine that most of our daily prayers will not be like Daniel's one here. This is a very specific situation where Daniel is intentionally confessing the sins of his people. But part of the Lord's Prayer is forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So don't, so don't use your sin as an excuse not to pray. So that's not a good idea. So don't, if you end up sinning and you think, right, that's it, I've blown it, can't go to God. Wrong, 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 wrong. Can't have that. Okay? So again, you guys, if you do something wrong, your, your parents might be cross with you, right? Yeah? But they're not going to suddenly say, right, that's it, we're not your parents anymore, do they? They accept you and they love you. It's a little bit like that with God. Okay? So we need to realize that actually if we've sinned, we can confess our sin to God. He will forgive us. But, and don't use it as an excuse not to pray. But don't just sweep it under the carpet. Okay? So that's lesson number three we would learn from this passage. And then finally... The most important lesson of all. So you guys get the big lesson. Okay, if we can open number four. What does that say? How will God look great? Okay, so this was going to originally be, how does this glorify God? But I thought that sounds like it might be a little bit harder to understand. How will God look great? Do you notice at the end of the passage, why does Daniel pray that God would set his people free from exile? Does anyone notice any language at the end that might be a bit surprising? For your sake. Daniel's praying that they might be set free from exile. Which, to be fair, being in exile is not a nice thing. Would you guys like to be sent away to a completely different country? No? Not a nice thing. But, when he's praying that God would return them, his primary motivation isn't so that we can have a nicer life. His primary motivation is, God, if you don't return us, the nations will look at you. Some of them might even get hold of our laws and realize that you'd promised to return us. And they're going to laugh at you. For your sake, for the, for, so that you look good as God, please will you return us to our land. And that has got to be our ultimate motivation in prayer. That doesn't mean we don't ask for stuff for ourselves. That doesn't mean that if someone's ill, we don't pray for them. But that ultimately, underlying that, what really drives us is, God, we want you to look amazing. And so I'm, I think I'm on a journey to try and make my personal prayer ultimately motivated by that. That even when I'm asking for stuff, I think, you know what, this isn't absolutely necessary for my life. I could still survive without this. I'm going to ask for it in a way that what I'm doing is phrasing it in my mind in such a way that it's, God, how does this make you look great? So if I'm praying for someone to be healed, for example, I want to be praying with compassion for them, but I want to ultimately be praying and saying, God, why don't you show how amazing you are by healing this person? 
or gods, would you give us the promises that you've given us, not so we can boast about how big our church is, but so that you can look great. And that has to be the ultimate foundation of our prayer. And you know the amazing thing is that actually we were designed to get the deepest joy possible out of God being glorified, out of God being seen as great. Which is amazing. It's, like, it, it's counterintuitive. You think, actually, our deepest joy, surely, is when God gives us all of the answers to the prayer, prayers that we want. Actually, our deepest joy is in seeing God glorified. And sometimes that can just take a step of faith of saying, actually, I'm going to pray intentionally, putting God's fame first, and just when you see those prayers answered, to see wh- what kind of joy that brings you then. So you think, actually, as we pray and as we fight for, fight for this stuff in prayer... God is going to be glorified, and that will actually bring us ultimate joy. So we need to make sure that all of these things are important, but the greatest and most important is the one that Nella is now holding up. Do you want to hold that up high, Nella, so everyone can see? Do you want to hold it up really high? The, the, uh, the piece of paper. Do you want to hold it up? Up high? Yay, there we go. How will God look great? That is the most important. That's got to be the motivation for our prayer. So thank you very much, guys. If you could just pick up the envelopes and put them over there, and you can go and sit down, and we will wrap things up very quickly. Great, you guys were brilliant. You actually managed to stay up at the front for the whole time and provide some good entertainment alongside as well. So there's some four very simple lessons, but I think very profound lessons. So simple enough lessons that a kid can understand them, but profound enough that actually they can dramatically change the way that you pray. And I'm kind of looking at this thinking, I, I feel challenged looking at these lessons on prayer, and I want to build them into my own prayer life. But let's just briefly look quickly at the outcome, because what happens, we're not going to read it out, is Daniel gets an answer to his prayer. It's a little bit different to what he might have expected, but he gets an answer, and basically an, the angel Gabriel comes to him and presents an answer, and in other words, he tells him, 70, actually, you're going to have 70 times seven years, which is kind of 490 years, symbolic figure. I don't think it's meant to be taken absolutely literally. But basically, you're not out of exile yet. And in fact, when God's people returned to the land, actually, they did return after broadly 70 years. They rebuilt the temple. But actually, God's glory seemingly didn't refill the temple, which is what Daniel was asking for here. He said, restore your sanctuary, come back and dwell with us. And that didn't happen when they physically returned to the land. And Gabriel is saying, actually, the exile is going to go on a lot longer. The exile is going to go on for quite a bit longer than you guys anticipated. But now the exile is over. The exile is over because... What marks the end of the exile is God returning in power to the temple. That didn't happen when God's people returned in about 500 or so BC. But that did happen when the Son of God walked this earth. Beginning of, so probably famous verse. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then fast forward a few verses, beginning of the Gospel of John. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we saw his glory. Glorious temple language. God answered this prayer in the person of Jesus. Jesus came, and the exile of his people finished at that point. We are not in exile anymore. We're not in exile under sin. We are not in exile, slaves under Satan, sin, and death. We have been set free from that because God has kept his promise. God has been so faithful. And actually, now, the amazing thing is, and we're going to finish on this, the band could come up, actually, would be a great way to respond. Daniel, here, is praying on behalf of his people. 
He's standing before God. <laughs> You're going to join the band. He's standing before God and he's saying, God, please would you listen to my pleas on my people's behalf. They, we've sinned, but I'm going to stand before you and pray, intercede for them. The Bible says that Jesus intercedes on our behalf. The Bible tells us that Jesus was condemned and then he was raised from the dead. Jesus, sorry, Jesus was crucified, he was crushed for our sin, he was raised from the dead, and he's seated at the right hand of God. And just like Daniel was for his people, he's praying for us. Hebrews 7 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, because he always lives to make intercession. Jesus prays without ceasing. He is standing right now, praying for every single one of us, that we would stand firm in faith. And the reason that is possible is because Jesus bore the ultimate curse of his people on the cross. The ultimate curse, not physical exile, but the ultimate curse of death and punishment, the wrath of God that was poured on him on the cross. And we're going to take the bread and the wine now and we're going to remember that. And we're going to remember that he has come out the other side of that curse and has been raised from the dead. And as we take bread and wine, we can pray for one another, we confess our sins to one another, rejoice in the gospel and remember that because he went through that curse, he has now been raised and stands at the right hand of the Father and prays for every single one of us. So let's stand, let's worship God and let's take bread and wine together and remember the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Jesus, we love you, and we want to glorify you now. We thank you that the exile is over. We thank you that we who were in slavery to sin, who were under fear of death, have been set free from that because you bore the curse. You took the curse. And Father, we pray that you would help us to apply these lessons on prayer in our life, Lord God, and that would be done out of a, out of a heart of gratitude for you, Lord God. But ultimately, we thank you that you are alive and that you reign and that you are seated at the right hand of God and that you are praying for us right now. And we thank you that your prayers are the most powerful prayers that have ever been spoken. Lord God, we, 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 if, if all, of, all Christians in the world were gathered and prayed with utter faith, they could not pray with the kind of effectiveness that you have before the Father. And we thank you, Lord, that we can be effective in prayer because you're praying for us. And we think you've been made alive through you. And we pray that you come be with us by your spirit and help us to focus our minds and our eyes on you, Lord God. We love you and we pray that you'd be with us today. In Jesus' name, amen.